Sisters, it is the Remnant Warrior here from Kingdom Productions and Publishing. And I just want to welcome all of you don't already watch this channel on a regular basis. I want to let you know that we upload new content several times a week, but at least every week. So you don't want to miss out when we upload something new thank you all in advance for your subscription i love each and every one of you until next time god bless you all is there anything that is so urgently important for us to do as to consider what our blessed lord had to say here about the future course of history and about the end of the world. End of the world. To talk about the end of the world would indeed have been regarded almost as a sign of lunacy. But you know, it's no longer like that, is it? There has been a complete transformation in the whole situation. Humans are always on the lookout for something better, bigger, tastier. When humankind possesses enormous new powers, and when the threat of famine, plague, and war is finally lifted, what will we do with ourselves? What will the scientists, investors, bankers, and presidents do all day? Having secured unprecedented levels of prosperity, health, and harmony, and given our past record and our current values, humanity's next targets are likely to be immortality, happiness, and divinity. Having reduced mortality from starvation, disease, and violence, we will now aim to overcome old age and even death itself. Having saved people from abject misery, we will now aim to make them positively happy. And having raised humanity above the beastly level of survival struggles, we will now aim to upgrade humans into gods and turn Homo sapiens into Homo Deus. We don't need to wait for the second coming in order to overcome death. A couple of geeks in a lab can do it. If traditionally death was the speciality of priests and theologians, now the engineers are taking over. When you're in a group of people who don't believe in Jesus Christ, are you able to stand your ground against all of them? Are you able to speak up about what you believe even when it's unpopular? And if, if you can't do that now, what makes you think, well, when it gets harder, then I can do it? Even in the, in the little day-to-day -day things, are you able to stand up for morality the way the Bible asks you to amidst peer pressure that goes against it? This is about Jesus Christ coming to destroy the world, and pour out his wrath upon the world. And the people recognize it then. They recognize this is about God. 
This is not normal. This is God. And they are scared for their lives. I want you to understand something. This lamb that they're talking about that is coming to destroy the world is the same lamb that came 2,000 years ago to save the world. Something is going to remind us that man does not have the right to destroy that which he did not create. The in taken has mankind, that knowledge of tree, the of fruit, the of out, bite, biggest, the is cybernetics. Almost all of the secret societies of the past have been dedicated to clean up jobs. They've all come like the Knights Templars to take care of the corruptions of various beliefs and doctrines. They came to take the place of political corruption that was beyond hope. Every day, in every way, the brothers were at work, sometimes secretly but always continuously. And in the next period of time, it seems to me we have Masonry's coming of age. Whether we realize it or not, it has been with us in one way or another. There may be more wars and rumors of wars, but these can be avoided. There can be and should be what Nostradamus Seer pointed out. He said in the closing years of the 20th century, there would be great confusion and sorrow and misery upon the earth and great wars and troubles. But at the beginning of the 21st century, the Paraclete, the Prince of Peace, will come. of this technology that is so powerful and has the potential to so radically transform our lives and our existence and we have to be very careful about how we do this. We don't want people controlling us.
we are born into a spiritual war. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, Arkas, against the authorities, Exousius, against the cosmic powers, Cosmocrators, of the darkness, Skotos, against the spiritual forces of evil, Pneumatica Tes Ponerius, in the heavenly realms. Mankind is a fallen creature, yet we still consider every living person as a valuable child of God created in his image, unique and loved by the creator of all things. But how is this possible? How are we both fallen and at the same time loved with the perfect love of our Heavenly Father? Perhaps it is because we are suspended in a spiritual war that we did not start, but are certainly responsible for entering into. The war that began in the heavenly realm has two distinct sides, one that is not from this world, but of the kingdom of heaven, in the process of restoring the intended infrastructure of God's rightful creation, and the other, led by a cosmocrator, called the Prince of the Power of the Air, who can appear as an Angel of Light, or the Shining One, that old serpent, the dragon, whose personal rebellion and subsequent lie to Eve, the mother of all living, with a complicit Adam, brought sin into our world. Sin is the deviation from God's intended will for creation. In our contemporary milieu, ideas like the simulation theory, popularized by Professor Nick Bostrom, whose theory suggests that the world is a giant artificial computer simulation, helps us plainly begin to examine sin as being similar to a powerful computer virus. In modern computing, a virus is considered small programs or scripts that can negatively affect the health of your computer. Thus, the sin virus is simply the reversal or decay of our intended state of being both in software or the unseen world, as well as the hardware, the visible world. The sin virus, like the computer virus, requires agency. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, an agent in the realm of computing is called a softbot or software robot, quote, a computer program that performs various actions continuously and autonomously on behalf of an individual or an organization. For example, an agent may archive various computer files or retrieve electronic messages on a regular schedule. Such simple tasks barely begin to tap the potential uses of agents, however. This is because an intelligent agent can observe the behavior patterns of its users and learn to anticipate their needs or at least their repetitive actions. Such intelligent agents frequently rely on techniques from other fields of artificial intelligence such as expert systems and neural networks and aim to achieve complex goals. 
the complex goal in the case of the sin virus is death. The sin virus has infected physical creation itself with decay. What the materialist philosophers have concluded, as well as material sciences have theorized, as heat death includes an eschatology for the ultimate end of existence as we know it. Christian philosopher, theologian, and author Dr. William Lane Craig explains. Modern man thought that in throwing off God, he had freed himself from all that stifled and repressed him. Instead, he discovered that in killing God, he had only succeeded in orphaning himself. For if there is no God, then man's life becomes ultimately absurd. It is without ultimate meaning, without ultimate value, without ultimate purpose. If each individual person passes out of existence when he dies, then what ultimate meaning can be given to his life? Does it really matter whether he ever existed or not? Now, it might be said that his life was important because it influenced others or affected the course of history. But that shows only a relative significance to his life, not an ultimate significance. If all of the events are ultimately meaningless, then what significance is there in influencing any of them? Mankind is destined only to perish in the eventual heat death of the universe. And thus the contributions of the scientist to the advance of human knowledge, the efforts of the doctor to alleviate pain and suffering, the efforts of the diplomat to secure peace in the world, the sacrifices of good people everywhere to better the lot of the human race. In the end, all of these come to nothing. They don't make one bit of difference, not one bit. And therefore, each person's life is without ultimate significance. And because our lives are ultimately meaningless, the activities that we fill our lives with are also, in the final analysis, meaningless. The long hours spent in study at the university, our friendships, our interests, our jobs, our relationships, all of these are, in the final analysis, ultimately meaningless. This is the horror of modern man. Because he ends in nothing, he ultimately is nothing. This state of death that we have inherited through the sin virus has been expressed in many ways throughout history, but perhaps the most appropriate is the Ouroboros, or the serpent eating its own tail, the ancient symbol for the cyclical nature of life and death, a deliberate reminder of who is actually responsible for this error in the fabric of creation. In the 1929 book Ouroboros, or The Mechanical Extension of Mankind, author and journalist Garrett Garrett appropriately observed, quote, You would think that when man had found a way to provide himself with artificial things in unlimited plenty, the gift of universal peace might follow. Never was the peace more frail, and this, as we shall see, the frailty of the peace is also a product of the machine. What force is this by fumbling found that man has put in motion? Its pulsations he controls. Its consequences so far have controlled him. And modern life has become so involved in a mechanical spiral that we cannot say for certain whether it is that we produce for the sake of consumption 
or consume for the sake of production. This nature of being trapped in an enclosed loop perfectly reflects the sin virus, which happens to eerily shadow modern computing and the origins of cybernetic research in the 20th century. You are inseparably part of a feedback loop comprising you and the world around you. In the world of psychology, we call this a cybernetic loop. Cybernetics is applied when a system being analyzed and processed incorporates a closed signaling loop. What was originally referred to as a circular causal relationship, any mechanical, physical, biological, cognitive, and even social systems possess emerging patterns of enclosed loops that can be quantified, analyzed, and thus controlled by manipulating the signals. This helps us understand why advertising is the way it is. They have figured out the method to tap into the human impulse, a part of us that can be easily manipulated by outside artificial constructs. There are three common structures used in computer science, selection, sequence, and perhaps the most basic yet powerful of the three, loops which are a sequence of instructions that continually repeats until a certain condition is met. Hence, we can understand the sin virus in this effect, a circular causal relationship, or signaling loop, running in the background processing of creation, of which repeats until it achieves its desired condition, death. This base layer problem became present in our world through the single decision made by our first parents, Adam and Eve. Genesis 3.6 says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. God's one commandment to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, so as to maintain the fragile balance of Eden, God's intended state for mankind and creation, was rejected and dismantled by way of temptation from an agent, that serpent, Hanakash, or the Shining One. As Eve saw that the fruit was good for food or for sustenance, which before the fall was everlasting, pleasant to the eye, appealing to the flesh, and desired to make one wise, as if an open relationship with the Creator himself was not enough. She ate, and so did Adam. Through this decision, the sin virus entered into Adam and Eve, corrupting first their bodies, but also clouding their souls and disconnecting them from clear access to the Spirit of God. The result would be death. It also gave legal right for the agents of the divine rebellion to gain influence and control over not only individuals, but entire populations. Romans 5.12 appropriately summarizes, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The implications of this passage are that humans were never supposed to die. Death 
was never supposed to be part of our existence. Protocol for Restoration, the ultimate antivirus or antidote for the sin virus, is already at work. Its blueprint was laid out in the life, death, and most importantly, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Its effects have rippled across all of His creation. Luke 18, 32-33 For He shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spitted on, and they shall scourge him, and put him to death, and the third day he shall rise again. Acts 2, 23-24 Him being delivered by the determinate counsel of foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. The reversal of death in this physical creation, demonstrated by Jesus, was the most important act for the creator of the universe, because it proclaimed his ultimate control and authorship and thus provide the restoration protocol for his creation. The effect it has on humanity harkens back to a familiar idea from the Bible of setting the captives free. I think what, what we learned from the very beginning, at least uh, with the, the foundations of the earth and human creation, is that, that God is interested in having not just a family in, in his own space, as it were, the spiritual world, you know, the sons of God who are here before creation, but God wants a, a human family. And since Eden is where heaven meets earth, you know, God comes, he dwells in this place, creates human beings again to, to be part of that. Where God is, his throne room is. Where his throne room is, his entourage is, his council, that sort of thing. Well, humans are right there too. And so Eden becomes this sort of paradigm for God having a blended family, divine family, human family, sort of you know, blended into one. And they are supposed to image him. They're supposed to represent him. There's a big Old Testament concept, the image of God. It's actually a better way of looking at it is imaging God. So. You know, we have this, this notion of a, of a blended family with both sides of that blended family working together to do what God wants done in this particular space, again, that we call Earth, you know, our, our domain. And, and this is the Edenic vision, to have all of this happening together and to be furthering what God wants done and to enjoy it. Of course, that doesn't work that way. It sort of all blows up. But the rest of the biblical narrative is about is really about restoring that, bringing that back into being. God doesn't want it to die. Okay, it was ruined. It was demolished. It was corrupted. You know, but God isn't done with it. He's not ready to wipe his hands of it and just call it a day. And so the rest of the biblical story is trying to recover this situation. It goes all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. While Jesus' resurrection marked the beginning of the restoration process, the fully restored Eden is still future. But as we rapidly march towards the noticeable season of his return, we can rejoice in knowing the complete effects of the restoration protocol as outlined in many passages of Scripture. Revelation 21, verse 1 
And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Echoing Isaiah 65:17, where it says, For behold, I create new heavens and new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. 2 Peter 3 verse 13 says, Nevertheless we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 states that he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom the work God has done from beginning to end. You know, with Jesus, a lot of people ask, well, why did Jesus, you know, why does, why does God have to become a man? You know, what, what's the whole point of this? Well, all of God's covenants are made with humans. And humans fail regularly and frequently. <laughs> so we've, we've got, you know, the Adamic situation. We've got the post-flood situation. We've got the Abrahamic covenant. We've got the Davidic covenant. We've got all these covenants, the Sinai covenant, all of them. And at some point, they break down because of human failure. So... God can't just say, well, that was a bad idea making agreements with humans because they just kind of stink at obeying all the time. <laughs> you, you can't do that. So instead of again saying it was a bad idea, God says, okay, we're going to keep the covenants intact and to make sure they all get fulfilled by a human, I'm going to become one of them and I'll do it. I'll get the job done. I will fulfill the, the terms of my own covenants. So the Incarnation allows Jesus to be the fulfiller of all these covenants, but in terms of salvation history, they're only part of the picture. I mean, he is the one who not only has to come to fulfill the covenants, which, you know, of course, are tied into the whole story of salvation, but, you know, to sort of fix the death problem, <laughs> you know, Genesis 3, the whole Garden of Eden problem, he has to, you know, come as a man and, like he says in the Gospels, to give his life a ransom for many. Because it's the only way to cancel out that debt. So, you know, the Incarnation is essential for all of these things. Covenant fulfillment and also, frankly, the ability, you know, to, to give his life as a ransom for uh, humanity. Again, to take care of the problem that uh, arose from Eden. Jesus does certain acts during his, his ministry. He goes certain places and he says certain things, again, to either provoke the powers of darkness into, you know, crucifying him. Uh, killing him off, but he also does certain things to make it clear that he's launching the kingdom of God. Like he sends out the 70 or 72, depending on, on you know what manuscript your, your translation is based on. But that number is significant because that goes back to the Deuteronomy 32 worldview when the nations were disinherited. If you count them in Genesis 10, you get 70. If you're using the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you get 72. But either way, it's the same event. And so when Jesus does this, it's this symbolic act that I'm not just here for the Jews. I'm also here to reclaim the nations. And this is, this is before the crucifixion. So he's already telegraphing the intent that what I'm going to do, what I'm about, is also not just being the Jewish Messiah, but it's going to be through the seed of Abraham, which is me, that all of these other nations are going to be brought back into right relationship with God. A community of people who have a right relationship with God will be the only thing that will keep the remnant church separate from the emerging hive mind world system where man will attempt to build Eden 2.0 and Adam 2.0 with their own hands. But as we will come to see, 
this pursuit, led by the Antichrist spirit, will result in the abomination of desolation spoken about by the prophet Daniel, Jesus on his Olivet Discourse, and the book of Revelation, as well as the man of sin, who will emerge from the system, confirming once again that there is nothing new under the sun. This is also new. It's not new. I realize that nothing we've been doing is new. We haven't been tapping into new areas of the brain. We've just been awakening the most ancient. This technology is simply a route to powers that conjurers and alchemists used centuries ago. We're seeing an exponential growth in all machines and innovations as technology surpasses and exceeds our limitations. Implications could be serious. And many past and present futurists have been warning us for years about the consequences. Massive repercussions. We see the evidence. Dependence on our internet and phones and games and televisions. Losing independence. As we reverse ourselves and working all our fingers to the bones for corporations. We give them back our paychecks. For the latest in the greatest plastic upgrades and band products and replacements and build the databases. Investing hours of our own free time uploading information used against us to target us with market advertising toward our interests. Collecting information used to monitor our senses. Correcting anyone who won't comply or be connected. How long before our mandatory microchips injected? It's the age-old lie. The promise of utopia. The carrot on the stick. The empty cornucopia. Technological hive mind dystopia. Or will it rise is a time of robophobia It's the age-old lie The promise of utopia The carrot on the stick The empty cornucopia Technological hive mind dystopia Or will it rise is a time of robophobia It's an emerging type insurgence Converging and emerging and churning Slowly bursting to the surface It's concerning every person And confirming every warning The disturbing thought we're working Toward a single mind that's merging And converting us to downloadable versions Of ourselves inside a full immersion you Universal simulated virtual reality Where every living earthly's neural pathways Are inspected mandatorily and connected Using voice to scold telepathy Absorbing data fingerprints to play us back Like instruments manipulating us Just like we're puppets of ventriloquists Remote controlling human beings like Ouija boards Coursing through the veins of circuit boards Record the sounds of every vocal cord Moving exponentially towards a singularity Eventually we won't distinguish magic from technology And robots will unplug from electricity No longer using batteries but I would like a golem using alchemy It's the age-old lie The promise of utopia The carrot on the stick The empty cornucopia Technological hive mind dystopia Or will it rise is a time of robophobia It's the age-old lie The promise of utopia The carrot on the stick The empty cornucopia Technological hive mind dystopia Or will it rise is a time of robophobia So we manipulate genetically Our DNA collectively Infecting every living organ and directing every intersecting thought and every memory and vision Inspecting our opinions and collecting our decisions A digital technocracy emerging as philosophy Inserting thought police patrols and mind control technology Removing private property Enforcing thought bureaucracy Reducing every freedom and pursuit of life and liberty Consistently expanding all their terms and their conditions With minimum requirements and maximum restrictions Creating unknown problems to offer fake solutions To complicate the system till there's nothing but Confusion, depicting anyone who won't conform as unacceptable, demanding everyone to all agree and not be skeptical, eventually connecting every mind from every nation, fulfilling prophecies from Genesis to Revelation. It's the age-old lie, the promise of utopia.
utopia The carrot on the stick, the empty cornucopia Technological hive mind dystopia Where will it rise is a time of robophobia mind is nature's way of aggregating the diverse perspectives of a population and maximizing their collective wisdom. And let's be honest, we humans are pretty smart as individuals, but in groups, we're not always that wise. That's because groups don't do a great job of combining their diverse perspectives. We use votes and polls and surveys. The problem is polls are polarizing. They drive us to entrench exposing and reinforcing our differences, but doing nothing to help us find common ground. A swarm is the opposite. It's flexible and dynamic, revealing where we agree most. In other words, swarming doesn't just make a species smarter, it makes a species wiser. Study after study show that when people think together in swarms, they can amplify their intelligence by 20%, 40%, 60%, and that's using current technology the long-term potential is likely much greater. After all, if a swarm of bees can solve complex problems that would challenge a human brain, a swarm of humans should be able to solve problems that we can't even conceive. We should be able to form a true superintelligence. And because the building blocks are people, tapping not just our knowledge, but our values and morals and sensibilities, the resulting superintelligence will not be alien, it will be human just smarter and wiser. We might be able to solve some of the hardest problems we face, like poverty and inequality and sustainability. So the next time somebody uses the phrase hive mind as a negative, remember this, if honeybees could observe how, how we humans make big group decisions, like electing our leaders or resolving our conflicts or planning for our future, they might think we're the primitive ones, but not for long. Jesus stated that it would be like the days of Noah when he would return. While there are many who dismiss the more immediate application of this passage that suggests we currently live in such times, there are parallels that can be drawn from the days of Noah in our world today that are pretty difficult to deny. Revelation 17.13 states, These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. Other than the many references to the church to be of one accord or of one mind in Jesus Christ, which can be done without the use of technology but by the leading of the Holy Spirit, there is an ancient account of the last time mankind were brought together in one mind and for one purpose, the Tower of Babel. Archbishop Usher estimated that the Tower of Babel was attempted about 106 years after the flood. While other estimates vary in the several hundreds, it is important to note that just three generations after Noah through the line of Ham was born Nimrod, the first mighty man or Giborim of the earth after the flood. 
This Geborum, or Mighty Man, was responsible for leading the charge and building the city and the tower that would reach heaven. Later in Genesis chapter 10 is the mention of Peleg, just five generations after Noah through the line of Shem. It adds that his name was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. This division is likely in reference to the Tower of Babel event when God confused the languages. So what was going on at the Tower of Babel, and how does it relate to today? Genesis 11 verse 1 and the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. While we still can't speak the same language face to face, the computer has become an essential tool to communicate quickly and efficiently with people that speak a different language. Ones and zeros have truly brought back the days of Babel in this regard. Believe it or not, this concept is actually being recognized and acknowledged by the secular world. In the book Prediction Machines, The Simple Economics of Artificial Intelligence, the authors discuss the achievements of AI, quote, This notion, taking information of one kind and turning it into information of another kind, is at the heart of one of AI's recent main achievements, language translation, a goal that has been around for all of human civilization, even enshrined in the millennia-old story of the Tower of Babel. Historically, the approach to automatic language translation was to hire a linguist, an expert on the rules of language, to exposit rules and translate them into a way they could be programmed. This is how, for instance, you might take a Spanish phrase and, beyond simply substituting word for word, understand that you need to swap the order of nouns and adjectives to make it a readable English sentence. The recent advances in AI, however, have enabled us to recast translation as a prediction problem. Later in Genesis 11 verse 6, And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. The oneness of the people in Babel, led by the Gaborim Nimrod, seems to invoke a technology that God says would allow them to do anything they imagined possible. The emergence of virtual realities has essentially provided this same exact idea. In the 2018 film Ready Player One, the main character suggests early in the film that their virtual world oasis is a place where you can be anything or anyone and is only limited by your imagination. Ever since the Enlightenment, there have been many voices considered pillars in history who have commented on imagination. Lewis Carroll is quoted saying, Imagination is the only weapon in the war against reality. Albert Einstein is quoted saying, Imagination is everything. It is the preview of life's coming attractions. Carl Sagan stated, Imagination will often carry us to worlds that never were, but without it, we go nowhere. Human imagination is perhaps the most powerful tool we possess. As imagers of God, it is important for us to understand what it means to harness this tool. 
In Genesis chapter 6, when God chose Noah and his family to enter the ark to save mankind from the destruction that was caused by the Beneha Elohim, the sons of God, and their offspring, Nephilim, he stated that their imagination was evil continually. While some believers still cannot wrap their minds around the possibility of these supernatural events being at the core of the reason for the Great Flood, one cannot deny the significance of how the technologies we have now and are rapidly developing for the future are leading to a time when humans will do nothing but reside in their imaginations, expressed in fully immersive virtual sensory experiences. 5G is bringing such incredibly high speeds of communication traffic, internet, internet type traffic, that it will totally disrupt several areas <clears throat> of society. And that they see that possibility. They're, they're in the middle of the technology. They know what it's going to do. You don't have to be a, an expert from the outside to see what they're talking about. But in their mind, they're going to light up like a Christmas tree. They're going to light up the Internet of Things when 5G hits the streets. It's going to enable autonomous vehicles completely. It's going to enable smart buildings and smart sensors and built into streets and lamp posts and cameras, you know, that can do instant art, you know, recognition of who's walking by. The tell for me was they had a gaming kind of contest the day before this, he talked. And they had some professional gamers come in and they were playing games, computer games, over 5G. The uniform response was, it was so instantaneous, it's like I was playing in a, a locally connected network. <clears throat> Just, there was no delay whatsoever. And the reason for that was, it's not just the high speed of the data transfer, but they were able to, somehow they're able to achieve a one millisecond response time, where now, even with the fastest routers, you know, Wi-Fi routers, we're lucky, and LTE and stuff, we're lucky to even get a response time of 35, 30, 25 milliseconds. Uh, one millisecond response is unheard of in history. Never had it. Even on a local area network where you had direct cables, you know, plugged into, say, five computers, you couldn't get that kind of response time, that turnaround time. That's the handshake that, you know, that I send you a mes message, whatever, you get it, you send me back. How long does it take it to get back? to me that you're alive over there. Usually, and, and of course you say, well, what's 28 milliseconds? That's, you know, thousands of a second, right? So when you talk going from like 30 milliseconds down to one, that is beyond a game changer. So imagine all of the connected devices out there in the world that are enabled to 5G, that's their intent. Uh, they're, Verizon and those companies are going to destroy the cable industry. They're going to destroy the satellite industry, you know, the TV and all that kind of stuff. And they'll be able to deliver this kind of, you know, real-time video and games and, um, and all of the Internet of Things, whatever, 
it's going to wake up in a, being instantaneously alive like a living being, right? It's going to be alive with everything giving instant response, instant transmission of data, and they've got all these towers hooked together with fiber optics so they can collect it real quick. And you remember I said, follow the data, follow the power. Where's the data? This is all about data. Getting the data, well, what are they going to do with the data? Well, they know how to collect it now. They, you know, they, they've lagged behind in analyzing the data, but that's catching up now. I, I said two or three years ago, I said, you just wait. The storage is already well advanced on how to get it on a, some kind of medium. But they didn't have the ability to analyze it yet. So the fact that they couldn't analyze it meant you're safe for a while. But now with the advancement of AI, with the advancement of quantum computing, well, you have now the possibility that things can be analyzed instantly, instantly as they come in. This is the technocrat's wet dream. I just like, you know, they will be able to treat humanity like a living, like a single living organism. On page 63 of Virtual Futures, Cyberotics, Technology and Post-Human Pragmatism, in a section titled Cyberculture Singularities, Telepathy, Alphabetic Consciousness, and the Age of Cyborg Illiteracy, the editors Joan Broadhurst Dixon and Eric J. Cassidy explain how language, specifically the alphabet, was an initiating factor and moving human society towards acting more like a single organism or a hive mind. Quote, In fact, everywhere pictographic writing makes its advent, we find the sudden emergence of what I call tech writing empires. These civilizations were akin to the rationalized hive structures of ants or bees. In China, among the Aztecs of Mexico or Incas in Peru, in Babylon, Sumeria, and Egypt, we see the same pattern of social, epistemological, and metaphysical organization arise when writing is discovered. Along with these scripts come other inventions so predictably similar that they seem to derive directly from imperatives in the nervous system itself, amplified or newly grown by use of the new cyborg device. Centralized authority in God Kings a monumental ziggurat-like or pyramidal architecture, hierarchies of priest-scribes, complex self-perpetuating bureaucracies, fluid but clearly demarcated social-economic classes, trade or craft guilds, imperialism, slavery, canalizing educational systems, confederations of tribes into nations, standardized monetary systems and trade, taxes, and so on. Almost every conceivable aspect of empire, in its gross form, was entailed in pictographic writing. Even the alphabet, with its greater efficiency and fidelity to speech, only seems to add abstraction and speed to what McLuhan described as the exteriorization of the nerve net." End quote. The last time humanity banded together to create something that would allow them to do anything they imagined to do, they rebelled against God, and God judged mankind. This time will be no different, 
as the symptoms of the sin virus continue to operate as a means to push men away from God and towards death, all under the deception of progress. Psalm 140 verses 1 and 2 Deliver me, O Lord, from the evil man. Preserve me from the violent man, which imagine mischiefs in their heart. Continually are they gathered together for war. The evil and violent man who imagines mischief in his heart continually gather together for war against God and his saints. This is consistent with Revelation 13.7 and Daniel 7.21, where the beast is allowed to make war with the saints. And this passage again seems to confirm that it will be human imagination that will drive this war. Imagination takes place in the realm of the mind. This is perhaps why there are so many passages in the New Testament that discuss guarding our minds and keeping it sober. 1 Peter 4.7 states, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. 2 Timothy 1 verse 7 states, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 16 states, For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This brings us back to the idea of being one mind in Christ as opposed to the one mind in man, which the Bible says will ultimately lead to man becoming beast, which is precisely what the advocates of the hive mind are suggesting. In the book, The Future of Man, Jesuit Telhart de Chardin stated, quote, We may note, certainly, that in these various forms of collective life differentiation, the fruit of the union goes hand in hand with mechanization, the element becoming a cog in the machine, and that this is especially what happens in the case of termitary and the hive, of which the shadow looms so disturbingly over the collective future of mankind. Later in the book, he states, quote, In present-day mankind, within, as I call it, the no-sphere, we are for the first time able to contemplate, at the very top of the evolutionary tree, the result that can be produced by a synthesis not merely of individuals, but of entire zoological shoots. Thus, we find ourselves in the presence, in actual possession, of the superorganism we have been seeking of whose existence we were intuitively aware. The collective mankind, which is sociologically needed for the furtherance of their speculations and formulations, now appears scientifically defined, manifesting itself in its proper time and place, like an object entirely new and yet awaited in the sky of life. It remains for us to observe the world by the light it sheds, which throws into astonishing relief the great ensemble of everyday phenomena with which we have always lived, without perceiving their reality, their immediacy, or their vastness." End quote. 
So let me take a step back in time here with you. Let's say roughly 75,000 years to around the time that mankind began wandering around the world, populating the different continents. And over those 75,000 years, here's a map of every single road and railway that we have built, right? Stretching, connecting just about uh, all the world's population. Now, let's layer in all of our energy systems, right? We've done transportation, now energy. Here's all of the world's oil and gas pipelines and electricity grids. And now, here are the, the, are the fiber optic internet cables, right? The communications networks. And of course, this is a infrastructural matrix wrapping itself around the world, accelerating in its volume across the planet across all continents, connecting all of human civilization together. And by some estimates, according to, for example, the uh, engineering company Autodesk in San Francisco, we will build more such infrastructure in the next 40 years than we have in the past 4,000 years. And I think that makes perfect sense because the world population has tripled since the end of World War II. And most countries, up until very recently, had not built sufficient infrastructure to cope with their growing populations, to connect their citizens to supply chains, to markets, to the world economy, to their neighbors. And that is the process that is now underway. Dr. Prakana is a, uh, an academic that concerns himself with globalization. Uh, he's got some very interesting insights and um, He's looking at the world now, not just in terms of national borders and stuff, but functional borders. How cities relate to each other and how economic units and economic specialties develop in certain cities around the world. And, and that's one way to look at the world now. How are, you know, how are goods and services moving around the world and stuff? So um, he's an expert in globalization. That's, you know, he's, he's picking up the pieces that were uh, originally cast with the Trilateral Commission back in 1973. This is the new economic order, world economic order. So he made this comment in his book, uh, Connectography. He said, globalization is not designed to be controlled by a global leader. Because everybody's, especially in the Christian world, they're all looking for a global leader right now, right? Uh, like the Antichrist. And, uh, and even non-Christians are looking, well, it's a new world order, they're going to have a dictator. Got to have a dictator. Not according to Prakana. Prakana makes it crystal clear that, and he, this is a direct quote, he said, globalization is itself the order. You got, you got to process that. Globalization is itself the order. So what that means, if, if you were to read the whole section of the book, what that means is the system that's being put together is what is designed to control everything. It's not a person, it's a system. The world of connectivity is changing the way nation-states interact and operate with one another. While traditional interpretations assigned nations to the animals of Daniel 7 and Revelation 13, it is highly plausible that their eschatological renderings might represent massive cybernetic hives each with their own characteristics with some geographical signals, which eventually gets crushed into the final conglomerate beast that is said to rise out of the sea. The sea, the oceans or many waters, is a mysterious realm of the earth, much of which 
still remains a mystery. Yet it is not only a source of life, but as a testament to the beauty and power of God and his creation. God has always displayed his power over nature using the sea, separating the waters at creation, the parting of the Red Sea, Jesus walking on the Sea of Galilee, and even the act of baptism represents a declaration to the sea, the abyss, or the underworld, that your soul chooses to be born from above and not below. The beast that rises out of the sea has specific characteristics about its infrastructure that are described in detail in the book of Daniel and Revelation. Revelation 13.1 And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. First, let's look briefly at the diadems. The diadem, or more simply a royal crown, has for centuries been the symbol of power, legitimacy, victory, triumph, honor, glory, as well as immortality, righteousness, and resurrection. They have been worn by monarchs or those who have been considered deities. But in the near future, will the crown just be a mere ornament for the head? Or might it be a device? that allows for remarkable communication and unique power. Just something to think about. As for the Ten Kings themselves, there are many examples in history that we can reflect on. For example, the Council of Ten. The Council of Ten was created on the 10th of July 1310. It was intended as a temporary response to the revolt led by Bargimonti Tipolo against the Doge, and was given emergency powers to deal with the resulting unrest. Although originally established for a period of two months, its authority was continuously renewed until it became a permanent body in 1334. The Council was formally composed of ten members, elected for one-year terms by the Great Council. In practice, its sessions were expanded to 17 members by including the Doge and others of the Signoria. In the latter half of the 17th century, the power of the Council began to decline. While it maintained its formal authority, it became increasingly incapable of preventing corruption, both within its own ranks and within the Republic at large. By the 18th century, its role was largely limited to suppressing the minor plotting of the Barnabotti. Although the Ten continued to attempt at reasserting their authority until the fall of the Republic and the dissolution of the Council in 1797. There is also the Committee of Ten who are responsible for our current American public school education system. Educators at the turn of the 20th century faced a critical question. How can the growing number of high schools provide similar educations? In the final decades of the 19th century, high schools sprung up like weeds on a spring day. In 1870, only 500 stood, but by 1900, that number grew to around 6,000. The National Education Association called for a standardized curriculum, and it appointed a committee of 10 in 1892 to develop that curriculum. The committee, chaired by Harvard University President Charles Eliot, consisted mainly of college presidents and professors, with only three representatives from high schools. 
The committee concluded that a standard high school curriculum should prepare students for college. In Nichiren Buddhism, the Ten Kings are described as, quote, Ten Kings of the World of the Dead, described in the Ten Kings Sutra, popularly believed to take turns judging the dead from the seventh day after a person's death until the second anniversary. Their true identities are said to be those of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Hence, though outwardly forbidding, they are actually compassionate. The concept of the Ten Kings is Chinese in origin. The Ten Kings Sutra is regarded as having been written in China. In Chinese mythology, the Ten Kings are called the Shiwang, who are the Ten Kings of Hell, who, quote, preside over fixed regions where the dead are punished by physical tortures appropriate to their crimes. Then, of course, there are the Ten Lost Tribes of Israel in the Bible. Without adhering to any specific thread of inquiry regarding this topic, like British Israelism, which suggests the Lost Tribes migrated north to invade Britain, or the theory that the Japanese people gained much of their tradition from the Lost Tribe members, it can simply be understood that if there are any connections between the Ten Lost Tribes and the Ten Kings, it means they will specifically appear to come from all over the world as the Ten Lost Tribes have been scattered across the earth. While these examples of Ten Kings are merely just that, examples, they certainly give us a shadow of things to come. Revelation 17.12 states that, quote, The ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast, indicating that these ten seats of power is yet future. However, we know that it may involve some sort of hive mind cybernetic loyalty to the system, as it states in the next verse, quote, These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. Daniel 7.8 outlines the rise of the man of sin from amongst the ten kings. Daniel 7.8 I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one before which three of the first three were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Many agree that this description of the little horn is the man of sin, or Antichrist. This one individual will uproot three of the seats, indicating that he will have unique authority on display amongst the remaining seven kings, and thus the world. It also says that his eyes were like the eyes of a man, indicating that this individual will not likely be entirely human. And a mouth speaking great things is echoed multiple times in the scriptures, identifying the man of sin. Daniel 11.37 2 Thessalonians 2.4, Revelation 13.5 Later in verse 20 of Daniel 7, the same drama of the little horn is outlined with one additional detail in verse 21, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, 
the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Confirming this pronouncement, Revelation 13.7 says, And it was given unto him to make war with the saints, and to overcome them, and power was given him over all kindreds, and tongues, and nations. The little horn will override the beast system when the dragon gives the distributed power of the cyberhive earth over to a single individual. This suggests that up until that point, the system will not necessarily have total control over the population, nor will it necessarily be all evil. In fact, the scriptures seem to suggest that it will rather be a time of great peace and prosperity developed through the system that will be hijacked and used for massive evil. Daniel 8, 23-27 And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully, and shall prosper, and practice, and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. And the vision of the evening and the morning, which was told is true, wherefore shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days. And I, Daniel, fainted, and was sick certain days. Afterward I rose up, and did the king's business, and I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. A couple things to point out. First, this man of sin will understand dark sentences, sometimes translated understanding riddles or master of intrigue. His power shall be mighty, but not of his own power, suggesting he will have not only the green light from Satan, the dragon himself, as stated early in Revelation 13, but also the help of his hive mind council of kings as well as the populations compliant with those kings. Second, it says he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, sometimes translated master of deception, cause deceit to prosper, deceit to succeed by his influence. But then it says he will magnify himself in his heart. The word for heart here is lebab, Strong's H3824, which means inner man, will, heart, or mind. And it is through his mind that by peace he will destroy many. The word for peace is Strong's H7962, Shalva, which means quietness or ease, sometimes translated complacency, prosperity, or time of tranquility, bringing us back to the idea that all of this will happen rather quickly and suddenly in a time that will appear to have great progress for peace on earth. These concepts might help us grapple with the pros and cons of our own journey riding the waves of the emerging cyberhive Earth. There are countless examples of the number seven in the scriptures attributed to God. There are seven stars or angels of the seven churches in the early chapters of Revelation, 
God rested on the seventh day of creation. But in the case of this beast, it states in Revelation 17.9, And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Many believe that this is Rome, and there are good cases to be made based on the previous information about the Council of Ten in Venice, with their ten members and seven additional heads. But there are many other cities claimed to be built on seven hills. They include Babylon, Moscow, Mecca, Libsyn, Tehran, Ammam, and more than 19 cities in the United States. And speaking of the United States, there is also a modern evangelical movement of what in my opinion is a heretical proposition that humanity needs to conquer the seven mountains of influence which include religion, family, education, government, media, arts and entertainment, and business before the Lord can return. Of course, the irony of a so-called Christian movement appealing to seven mountains where the harlot fornicates with the beast should not be missed. However, there is another place that sits on seven hills, and that is Jerusalem. Jerusalem's seven hills are Mount Scopus, Mount Olivet, and the Mount of Corruption, all three peaks in the mountain ridge that lies east of the Old City. But in addition, there is Mount Ophel, the original Mount Zion, the new Mount Zion, and the hill on which the Antonia Fortress was built. The case for Jerusalem, being the harlot who rides the beast, has some compelling aspects that connect to the god of fortresses. The agents who continue to instigate and spread the sin virus in our creation began with the once perfect but now fallen guardian cherub who is described in Ezekiel 28 verses 14 through 16 as being established by God on the holy mountain in the midst of the fiery stones, perfect in all his ways, until iniquity was found in him. The passage continues by telling us that it was through trade that caused violence in his heart, and thus sin resulting in his casting out of the mountain of God. We will dig deeper into the element of trade being a massive marker and prophetic signals of our day in a section titled Merchant Magic. The operation of spreading and maintaining the sin virus in our world can be understood as the deliberate work of the fallen ones who tap into the Antichrist spirit rather than the spirit of God. These agents of the sin virus mainly operate in the unseen realm. According to the historical book of Enoch, the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim are the New Testament demons or devils. They deliberately tie into the Rephaim and Anakim of the Old Testament, who are directly described as the descendants of Nephilim. Because the Nephilim were an abomination to God's created order, their nature was foundationally destined for destruction. Enoch 15 verses 8 through 11 says the giants who are produced from the spirits and flesh shall be called evil spirits upon the earth, and on the earth shall be their dwelling. Evil spirits have proceeded from their bodies because they are born from men, and from the holy watchers is their beginning and primal origin. They shall be evil spirits on earth, and evil spirits shall they be called. 
As for the spirits of heaven, in heaven shall be their dwelling. But as for the spirits of the earth, which were born upon the earth, on the earth shall be their dwelling. And the spirits of the giants afflict, oppress, destroy, attack, do battle, and work destruction on the earth, and cause trouble. They take no food, but nevertheless hunger and thirst, and cause offenses. And these spirits shall rise up against the children of men and against the women, because they have proceeded from them. It is strange and eerie that in computing, a daemon is a program that runs in the background, hidden from direct user control. The word daemon connects back to the ancient Greek daemon, which can mean deity, divine power, lesser god, guiding spirit, tutelary deity, one's genius, lot, or fortune. Oxford American Dictionary defines the daemon to mean, quote, inner or attendant spirit or inspiring force. Originally coined after Maxwell's demon, the daemon was intended to be an imaginary being sorting molecules behind the scenes benign to any moral responsibility. But as computers enter the quantum era, sentient entities only recognizable in mythology yet believed in various cultures throughout recorded human history, are suddenly being summoned into existence, embodied in what will fulfill the prophecies concerning the god of fortresses. These things that we're summoning into the world now are not demons, they're not evil, but they're more like the Lovecraftian great old ones. There are entities that are not necessarily going to be aligned with what we want. So this transition is really, really massively important for our entire species to navigate, and nobody is paying attention. In Daniel 11 verse 38, the Antichrist figure is said to honor the God of forces. The word for forces in the King James is sometimes translated fortresses. The Hebrew word is maoz, defined as a place of means of safety, protection. It originates from the Hebrew uz, which means to take or seek refuge. And while there are compelling interpretations about who or what the God of Forces is in Daniel 11.38, there's no doubt that it will pertain to the theme of security and protection, which happens to be highly relevant themes in modern computing. Iran attacks Israel on a daily basis. We monitor these attacks, we see these attacks, and we foil these attacks all the time. Iran threatens us in many other ways. They've issued in the last 24 hours uh, uh, threats that say that they'll destroy us, they'll target our cities with missiles. Uh, we're not oblivious to these threats. They don't impress us because we know what our power is, both in defense and in offense. But the important thing is that any country can be attacked today with cyber attacks. And every country needs the combination of a national cyber defense effort and a robust cybersecurity industry. And I think Israel has that and has that in ways that are, in many ways, uh, unmatched. The possibility that this god of fortresses might have something to do with our current emerging super-intelligent cyber gods is further confirmed when the verse states that this god of forces was, quote, a god whom his fathers knew not, 
indicating that it will appear to be something new, perhaps due to the widely spread technologies that will be available. It also states that this god of forces will be honored with gold and silver, precious stones, and pleasant things, reminding us of the once guardian cherub whose corrupt trade got him kicked off the holy mountain of God. The identity and location of this fortress is given to us in Revelation 17. In verses 4 through 6, it states, And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. The identity of the woman, Mystery Babylon, is later revealed in verse 18 where it says, And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. In the book Mystery Babylon, when Jerusalem embraces the Antichrist, an exposition of Revelation 17 and 18 by Chris White, he states, quote, I believe Mystery Babylon is the last day's city of Jerusalem. I choose my words very carefully in this description. In other words, I believe it is the Jerusalem of the end times where, according to Daniel 11.45, the Antichrist sets up his headquarters. According to this view, the people of the city of Jerusalem will promote the Antichrist as their Messiah and as the one true God, thereby committing the ultimate abomination, the ultimate harlotry. Not only that, but they will promote him and entice the world to follow them in their worship of the man of sin, Revelation 17.2. We know that the Antichrist will choose Jerusalem as the place to declare himself to be God, 2 Thessalonians 2.4. Matthew 24.15, Daniel 11.31-32. And we know that the greatest religious persecution of all time, which is prompted by the abomination of desolation, will happen in the city of Jerusalem, according to Matthew 24, verses 15-21. through 21. So we already understand that there is a relationship between the Antichrist and the city of Jerusalem. But few of us have put all the pieces together to understand the significance of the Antichrist's apparent focus on Jerusalem. Last month, I also took an action endorsed unanimously by the U.S. Senate just months before. I recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. The rebuilding of the Jewish temple is a very important milestone in the sequence of end-time events. And there can be many interpretations of Bible prophecy, who the Antichrist is, when he's going to come, even whether we're living in the end times at all. But when the Jewish temple is rebuilt, then we know for sure that we're in the last seven years. And we lock in to a very definite sequence of events as foretold in the books of Daniel, Revelation, 
and many other prophetic passages in the Bible. Yes, the temple is very significant in end-time Bible prophecy. It's where the Antichrist finally declares that he is God, tries to bring about the end of the worship of the true God. It's also where he uh, places what is known as the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet and quoted by Jesus in Matthew 24. This abomination of desolation, or the image of the beast, as John calls him in the book of Revelation, do we know what it is, or what it's likely to be? Well, there are those who have speculated, and rightly so, that it could be some type of supercomputer combined with what the transhumanists are now pushing forward, as well as changes in the genome system. Science is putting it all together. Never before in world history that we know of has it been possible to track every man, woman, and child. Bible does talk in Revelation 13 about the mark of the beast, the famous 666. And somehow this abomination of desolation it is what is going to be able to put that into practice and try and force people and cause people to take the mark of the beast that no man may be able to buy or sell, save he that had the mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name. It all comes down to economics, Chris. If you don't have it, you can't buy and you can't sell. Author and researcher Anthony Patch pointed out how it is fascinating to see the configurations of modern quantum computing chips and compare them to the layout of the holy temples of the past. In this example, an image of a QPU from D-Wave right from their website is laid out in eerily similar fashion to that of Solomon's temple. Not to mention the biblical measurement of a cubit with a C being the same phonetically as a cubit with a Q in quantum computing. Is it possible that the third temple in Jerusalem might replicate some kind of quantum computing mechanism that invokes the God of forces which gives the man of sin complete control of geopolitical, spiritual or religious, technological and economic authority? over the earth. We will just have to wait and remain watchful. Apart from the ten horns, seven heads, and ten diadems describing the beast that emerges out of the sea, this beast is a conglomerate of three animal beasts, the lion beast, leopard beast, and the bear beast. Revelation 13.2 And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth, and to it the dragon gave his power, and his throne, and great authority. With Daniel 7 as a backdrop to provide more detail regarding each of these beasts, we can begin to see how a cyber hive earth might serve as a perfect foundation for each of these animals. In Daniel 7.4, it states, The first was like a lion, and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth, and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Lions appear over 140 times in the Bible, often indicating strength and power. In Psalm 22, verses 12 through 13, the bulls of Bashan, in reference to Baal and other demonic gods, 
are compared to having lion's mouths. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. According to Dr. Mike Heiser in his book Supernatural, What the Bible Teaches About the Unseen World, it states, quote, The creepy part about this description is the fierce bulls from Bashan. In the Old Testament times, Bashan was ground zero to demonic gods and the realm of the dead. The area was a leading center for the worship of Baal, symbolized by bulls and cows. Bulls from the land of Bashan is a reference to demons, the powers of darkness, and to confirm the notion of demonic entities being compared to the mouths of a lion. 1 Peter 5.8 famously says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. In a passage about the witness against Israel in Amos 3 verse 12, the lion is described as a tool for judgment, as the enemy of Israel who will surround the land, pull down their strongholds, and plunder their citadels. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. In other words, it suggests that only a remnant will escape the mouth of the lion. So far we can see that the lion, according to biblical references, 1. always focuses on its mouth, which is confirmed in Revelation 13.2, the passage that describes the final beast as having a mouth like a lion. 2. Lions' mouths are used to compare supernatural entities that are hostile to humanity, as in the case with the bulls of Bashan and the devil himself. And three, it suggests that only a few will remain unaffected by its plunder. It's interesting to note that this lion beast had eagle's wings prior to them being plucked, because eagle's wings in the Bible typically represents God's supernatural intervention and help to escape a situation. The prime example is found in Exodus 19.4 where it says, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagle's wings, and brought you unto myself. Similar passages exist in Isaiah 40 verse 31, Jeremiah 48 40, and 49 22. So having them plucked means they will no longer have God's protection or supernatural intervention. This notion is familiar in the scriptures when in 2 Thessalonians 2 it mentions the restrainer who will be taken out of the way. Then it is said to stand on two feet like a man. It is even given a man's heart, or sometimes translated, a man's mind, which suggests the lion beast will walk and talk like men. The obvious pattern is that a non-human entity, in this case a lion, which is compared to the mouths of supernatural entities like the bulls of Bashan and the devil himself, are given human features to stand on two legs, given a heart or a mind of man, all for destructive purposes. Could this lion beast be describing an eschatological time when ancient demonic gods and other entities from the realm of the dead, including possibly the devil himself, will literally walk amongst us again in human bodily form? Perhaps the abomination of desolation and the image of the beast will have something to do with this potentiality. But even more, the parable of the wheat and tares becomes increasingly applicable to such a strange scenario, as both the wheat and the tare 
are identical until a certain season. If the lion beast is describing an eschatological manifestation of demonic gods and spirits in human bodily form, no one will be able to tell the difference by appearance if a person is actually a demonic god whose names may not have been written in the Book of Life from the foundation of the world, or just a regular human being. If this all sounds too sci-fi for you, consider the fact that this section of the prophecy made the prophet Daniel sick to his stomach. The most fascinating secular research to tie into this potential interpretation is found with the work of Dr. David Jacobs, whose decades of research into the field of UFOs, alien abductions, and encounters suggests that a race of aliens are attempting to genetically mingle themselves with human beings. Quote, In the past, I was completely convinced that hybrids were not walking around with us. That notion was silly and evidence-free. In recent years, however, I have found mounting evidence that has forced me to change my mind. I now believe it might be very well possible that hybrids are integrating into the society and actually walking around here. I feel somewhat foolish saying this, but I have to go where the evidence leads me, and alas, it has led me to this position. More familiar passages like Daniel 2.43 also come into focus. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. It's also important to keep in mind that regardless of what the lion beast actually turns out to be, its teeth will clutch onto its prey, which is the church. Nevertheless, we are promised that God will ultimately prevail in verses like Job 4 verse 10, where God describes judgment on the wicked when he says, The roaring of the lion and the voice of the fierce lion and the teeth of the young lion are broken. Daniel 7.5 And behold, another beast, a second, like a bear, and it raises up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. The popular translation of the bear are the struggles of Medo-Persia. And while this interpretation does have some remarkable connections to historical events, there are still future application to consider. And as if on cue, the lion and the bear are both mentioned in the context of rulership over people in Proverbs 28, verse 15, and Amos 5, verses 18 through 19. Proverbs 28, 15, As a roaring lion in a ranging bear, so is a wicked ruler over the poor people. Amos 5, 18 through 19 drives home the point even deeper by using the lion, the bear, and a serpent to describe the day of the Lord's wrath. Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord! To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. As if a man did flee from a lion, and a bear met him, or went into the house, and leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. The popular view for why the bear is raised up on one side goes back to the Medo-Persian interpretation. It suggests that the two powers, Medo and Persia, were uneven, and therefore one side raised up. But there is a far more interesting and admittedly strange way to understand this passage, and by no means am I suggesting this was intended by the biblical authors. Again, these are not hard interpretations or predictions, but simply potentialities, especially given our current contemporary situation. When God created Eve, it says that God put Adam into a deep sleep and took out one of his ribs. But why a rib? 
According to USC News in 2014, quote, using CT imaging, Srauer, Mirani, and colleague Janice Lee from the University of California, San Francisco, monitored the healing of a human rib that had been partially removed by a surgeon. The 8 centimeters of missing bone and 1 centimeter of missing cartilage did partially repair after 6 months. To better understand this repair process, they removed sections of rib cartilage ranging from 3 to 5 millimeters from a related mammal, mice. When they removed both cartilage and its surrounding sheath of tissue called the perichondrium, the missing sections failed to repair even after 9 months. However, when they removed rib cartilage but left its perichondrium, the missing section entirely repaired within one to two months. They also found that a perichondrium retains the ability to produce cartilage even when disconnected from the rib and displaced into nearby muscle tissue, further suggesting that the perichondrium contains progenitor or stem cells. Genesis 2 verse 21, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept and he took one of his ribs, and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. It is clear in the text that God only took one rib out of Adam to form woman. This would mean that God took it out of one side of Adam's body. The word for raised up in the Aramaic is kum, which means appoint, establish, raise up self, arise up, make to stand, set up. But before we make any hasty conclusions, let's move on to the next part of the verse. And it had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it, and they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. The word used for arise, to devour much flesh, is the same Aramaic word used for the raising up on one side of the bear beast. And remarkably, this bear has three ribs in its teeth, and the devouring of the flesh itself is consistent with Jesus' warning in Matthew 24, 22 and Mark 13, 20, where it says that, except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. I cannot help but mention the overall high strangeness of all of these connections. One, one side of the bear beast raised itself up. The transhuman philosophy of self-directed biological evolution comes into focus here, versus God's directed creation, which is outlined with Adam's side. Second, are the three ribs in its teeth, as opposed to one used by God to create woman. And the third element is the rising to devour flesh, as opposed to the mother of all living, Eve. In 2 Samuel 17.8 in the ESV, the characteristic of the oppressive bear is described as being violently protective of her offspring. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Considering all of these elements, is it possible that the bear beast in Daniel 7 is a description of an offshoot or fork of humanity, a counterfeit to the creation of Eve from Adam, or dare I say, a new race of humans who will be highly protective of their own kind. While it sounds crazy, it might help explain the rapid normalization of things like gender dysphoria, pedophilia, and other taboos in society, which are openly being celebrated for the intention of desensitizing the population to accept the increasingly bizarre. And given the rapid acceleration of genetic engineering 
and even the culture of transformation and ascension, what author Carl Teichrib references as age of re-enchantment, this interpretation should not go unnoticed in our generation. In Revelation 13.2, the final beast is described as having feet like a bear's. Feet in the Bible are used to express one's walk, conduct, or formal possessions, suggesting that these attributes of the bear beast will be a worldview and a way of life that is spread all across the world. Daniel 7.6 After this, behold, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. Both the lion and the bear have militant undertones to its character traits, but the leopard brings an apparatus that is all too familiar for us living today. Hosea 13.7 says, Therefore I will be unto them as a lion, as a leopard, by the way will I observe them. Jeremiah 5.6 says, Wherefore a lion out of the forest shall slay them, and a wolf of the evenings shall spoil them, a leopard shall watch over their cities. Everyone that goeth out thence shall be torn in pieces, because their transgressions are many, and their backslidings are increased. The leopard in both of these passages allude to one thing, surveillance. As the observer who watches over cities, even working with the lion to destroy anyone who falls out of line, these attributes of the leopard are perhaps the most apparent in our society today. This watchful leopard has four wings of a fowl. A fowl was a general word to denote all flying creatures, sometimes of the edible kind. In Leviticus law, the fowls are distinguished between clean and unclean. Isaiah 46.11 uses a fowl as a symbol of a conqueror. The carcasses of men are fed to the fowls in a gruesome image of judgment and destruction in Deuteronomy 28.26, 1 Samuel 17.44 and 46, Psalm 79.2, and Jeremiah 7.33. In Acts 10 and 11, fowls are included in Peter's vision when he saw the heavens open up, a vessel descending unto him like a great sheet descending, being let down upon the earth by all four corners. Here, fowls and other beasts that come into Peter's view during his vision are declared clean by God. But Revelation 18:2, 19:7, and 21 all use the fowl in God's judgment of the final beast itself. Revelation 18:2, and he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen, and is become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Then later after the destruction of Mystery Babylon, these caged birds are released into the air where an angel standing in the sun declares to the fowls to come feast on the flesh of kings and commanders, mighty men, horses and riders of all men, slave and free, great and small, referencing those who took the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. But it is not just the fowl itself, but specifically its four wings where we can gain deeper understanding of the leopard beast. We've already seen eagle's wings, specifically in reference to God's supernatural protection, which would fall under the broader category of fowl's wings. But it's also used poetically in instances of reach, love, healing, and in the case of Jesus in Matthew 23:37, once again, protection by God himself, in a passage that foreshadows the judgment of mystery Babylon. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, 
even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. This suggests that the leopard beast, similar to the lion beast, will have some kind of supernatural protection or security that resembles God's love and favor. Thus, the fowl in its four wings of the leopard beast might be indicative of something that will appear to be God-like supernatural protection, one that harkens back to the concept of the God of fortresses and modern cybersecurity. In addition, Daniel 7.6 says that it will have four heads and dominion given to it. The four heads of the leopard beast have been compared to the four angels bound in the great river Euphrates, Revelation 9.14. This naturally brings us back to Genesis 2, where in verse 10 it says, And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The four heads in Genesis are named and described for our understanding of the leopard beast. The first is named Pishon, in the land of Havilah where there is gold, the foundational monetary store of value in our world. Verse 12 goes on to say how the gold of that land is good in the eyes of God and that there are other precious stones indicating wealth or money being the main focus of this head. Gold and silver have been money forever. As far as I'm concerned, it's God's money. I mean, I jokingly say, and I took this from another speaker years and years ago, but uh, gold is God with an L in it. <laughs> the point is that, you know, it's been around for 5,000 years. Silver is the first money mentioned in the Bible. <clears throat> and I don't think it's going away. There's nothing more uh, that gives you more anonymity than uh, precious metals, really, because I can leave this, you know, our interview and go to wherever and barter with a silver coin and get you know a shirt or you know some labor or whatever a lunch and uh, no one really knows it's just like cash you know and this is of course what the banks hate i mean at first they you know had a cash society and now it's becoming a cashless society why they want the control they want that blockchain they want to know everything you think do and say they want it recorded and they want to know what your social merits are because this is going and i don't didn't ask the question i'm kind of anticipating it but you know money to me when i was 11 years old and to my 20s and 30s probably into my early 40s, represented freedom. The idea being that if you had enough of the stuff, you could work for yourself, you could get a cash flow by owning a bunch of apartments or whatever, and you basically were free because enough money and enough cash flow, you were free, free of the man, free of having to work for somebody. You could choose what to do with your days. You could you know, work 16 hours or take it easy. You, know, you had the, all these options because that money represented a lot of freedom. That's no longer true because now we're going to this social credit system that's really caught on fire in China and other places. And it's not based on your money, which because you could have a lot of money, but if your social credit rating is low because you're anti-government or you jaywalk too often or you write something that isn't in the meme of the, of the power elites, then all of a sudden your social credit rating goes down. So it doesn't matter if you've got the money to buy an airplane. You can't buy one because the social credit system says don't sell them one. And this is very, very scary, and that's the direction we're going. The next riverhead is Gihon, which flows around Cush. Interestingly, Cush is the grandson of Noah, Ham's eldest son and father of Nimrod, who eventually went on to build the Tower of Babel. The third is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, where it joins the fourth river Euphrates, where the ancient city of Babylon could be found. Whatever the four angels in Revelation 9 are, they seem to connect directly to the four heads of the leopard beast. And not only is this of geographical significance, 
but the greater point is that the leopard beast represents abundant wealth and commerce or trade, which as we have seen right before our eyes is becoming ever more dependent on security, which means a robust surveillance apparatus, just like leopards are described as being watchful in the Bible. And if Mystery Babylon is the eschatological city of Jerusalem, otherwise described as the harlot, then part of the beast she fornicates with and makes her wealthy will likely be the leopard beast. Revelation 13.2 starts with, And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard. Notice how there are no specific details about the leopard in the conglomerate fourth beast, except for the fact that it was simply like a leopard. This brings us to the final beast. The overall theory is that these three animal beasts, lion, bear, and leopard, will be contemporary developments, as the scriptures clearly seem to indicate in what we just examined. Daniel 7 verse 7, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth, it devoured and brake in pieces, and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it and it had ten horns. This dreadful and terrible fourth beast is exceedingly strong because it has combined and unified the first three animal beasts, the lion, bear, and leopard. The result is a beast with great iron teeth, certainly a confirmation of the lion beast being a manifestation of demonic entities in flesh and machine. It then says it devoured everything under its feet, which in Revelation 13 is said to be like a bear. God is said to see the earth as his footstool, but in the case of the fourth beast, its stampling will not actually take over what God has created, but rather force anyone who does not get caught in the clutches of its iron teeth to also be stamped into submission. The word for diverse in the Hebrew translation is H8133, Shena, which means to change or be altered. Again, it is simply astonishing to consider how the Word of God told us exactly how the world we live in might play out thousands of years ago. This altered beast that combines the power of the first three beasts is precisely the system that will eventually control the entire world. But as always, it's vital to keep in mind how God will use these scenarios for His ultimate fulfillment. As we read the interpretations of Daniel's vision in the latter half of Daniel 7, Consider how the world around you and where it's all going may have been revealed to us in the Word of God. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass, which devoured, break in pieces, and stamped the residue with his feet. And of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes, and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows, I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints, and prevailed against them. Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down, and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall rise after them. And he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. 
and he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until the time and times and the dividing of time. But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end, and the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations much troubled me, and my countenance changed in me. But I kept the matter in my heart, The mark of the beast and the image of the beast have been the most popular topics of biblical prophecy in the last few decades. As the monetary system made massive changes in the 20th century, many modern Bereans recognized its eschatological significance. But before we dive in, it's important to establish what the Bible says about money. The Bible doesn't really define um, the function of money but it does uh, describe in great detail the effects of money. Money has taken hundreds of forms over thousands of years, and money's been iron bars, uh, silver, gold, and copper nuggets, dust, bars, and coins. Uh, it's been seashells, it's been salt, it's been fancy pieces of paper, and it's been electrons accessible with cryptographic security. So. The Bible, like I said, doesn't really define what money is, but it does get into great detail as to the effects of money or what money does. We know that it's not money itself, but the love of money, which can bring all kinds of evil. In the year 1900, the Gold Standard Act established gold as the only standard for redeeming paper money. In 1944, the Bretton Woods Agreement established the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, to monitor exchange rates and lend to nations. This also made the U.S. dollar as the only fiat convertible to gold. The system officially collapsed on August 15, 1971, when President Nixon ended the gold standard for good. Accordingly, I have directed the Secretary of the Treasury to take the action necessary to defend the dollar against the speculators. I have directed Secretary Connolly to suspend temporarily the convertibility of the dollar into gold or other reserve assets, except in amounts and conditions determined to be in the interest of monetary stability and in the best interest of the United States. Now what is this action, which is very technical? What does it mean for you? Let me lay to rest the bugaboo of what is called devaluation. If you want to buy a foreign car or take a trip abroad, market conditions may cause your dollar to buy slightly less. But 
If you are among the overwhelming majority of Americans who buy American-made products in America, your dollar will be worth just as much tomorrow as it is today. The effect of this action, in other words, will be to stabilize the dollar. Ever since then, the dollar has continued to lose value. In fact, one dollar in 1971 is equivalent to just 16 cents in 2019, with an annual inflation rate of 3.91%. In full cooperation with the International Monetary Fund and those who trade with us, we will press for the necessary reforms to set up an urgently needed new international monetary system. Stability and equal treatment is in everybody's best interest. I am determined that the American dollar must never again be a hostage in the hands of international speculators. But even more, the kind of frivolous spending by our military-industrial complex might be the most absurd yet unpunishable public crime of our generation, enabling the kind of corrupt systems like human trafficking, arms dealing, and drug smuggling to become the way of the world. In other words, we no longer have a form of sound money. I would say that the, but money must be a long-term store of value and a unit of account that is portable, durable, divisible, interchangeable, and scarce. Now, with that definition in mind, I no longer consider the U.S. dollar and any other fiat currency to be money because trillions, as we will see, have been printed up. And that literally devalues the um, function of our labor. If you look at uh, how upside down the world is, if there's something that there's a little bit of, something that's rare is usually valuable. If there's a lot of something, it's usually not very valuable at all. Yet in the world that you and I live in, one of the most uh, greatest things that exist in the monetary sphere is the U.S. Treasury debt. The amount of paper that we have printed is like on a domestic level, 21 trillion, on a global level, and what we owe on what's called unfunded liabilities, you're talking between 70 and 200 trillion dollars. And yet it's perceived, and this is partly by the manipulation from the top or the media, and that is that the safest thing you can own is one of those pieces of paper. And yet they're so plentiful, they're really worthless in, in reality. But in our reality, they're considered to be safe as can be. There's nothing more safe than the debt of the United States government. And this, of course, is an absolute fallacy. It's not true whatsoever. Something like silver, that there really is only about 2.5 billion ounces that are in investable form, meaning like commercial-grade bars, investment-grade bars, or coins of any denomination, either government-minted or privately-minted. And so if you think, well, 2.5 billion ounces versus 7 billion people on the planet, basically it's less than half an ounce per person. And if that represented all the money in the world, and that's money, not fiat, not an edict, not a piece of paper, then it shows you how upside down things really are. Since 2008, approximately $40 trillion has been printed up just by the United States Federal Reserve alone to bail out the big banks, to uh, fund 
the Pentagon as an enforcement arm for the United States dollar. And um, the bad bets that Wall Street has made, I mean, the really bad bets, have been absorbed by the, Uni the United States Federal Reserve to the point of about $3.5 trillion. So when you add $29 trillion worth of bailouts uh, by Wall Street on behalf of the Federal Reserve, plus about $6.5 trillion that has gone, quote-unquote, missing from the Pentagon in an effort to enforce the value of the U.S. dollar around the world, plus about $3.5 trillion, that's about $40 trillion. Now, that number is just so abstract that the average person can't relate to it. So let me break that down for you. When you take $40 trillion and you divide it by the number of households in America, that works out to about $315,000 per household, which is nuts. That is more than enough to pay off all, I repeat, all residential mortgages in the United States. So back to your question about gold. Gold has been the number one standard by far of what money has been and still is in many cultures because it is a natural product. It is a natural resource. It exists in the earth. It can't be uh, simply conjured up by authorized keyboards. And that standard has been in place uh, for about 5,000 years, and it has been keeping pace with population until the uh, post-World War II period, uh, where we got into fiat currencies at the rate of about a 2% per year increase. So in other words, the production of gold has kept up until the post-World War II period, meaning that the value of gold has been stable as a way of um, conducting commerce between people. Now, that's just the backstory about gold, the brief history about gold, but gold also has spiritual qualities, according to the Bible. In uh, 1 Kings 20, verse 3, we read, Thy silver and thy gold is mine, thy wives and also thy children, even the goodliest are mine. In other words, God values gold and silver and everything that you have. If you're a Christian, you're just really a steward. You don't own anything. God owns everything that you have, including you and your family. And because God made gold and silver as natural resources, natural elements that can't be corrupted, uh, natural uh, resources that have been uh, keeping pace with the population for about 5,000 years, it's been a remarkable standard. And like I said, it's only been uh, in the past 60 years or so where we have literally uh, gone off the deep end and have created mountains of debt, which are just totally unnatural as opposed to God's standards. The reshuffling of the financial infrastructure after World War II also allowed for a system of hidden finance to develop right under our noses. The term breakaway civilization was coined by leading UFO researcher and author Richard Dolan to describe an elite class of humans who would have access to this hidden economy in order to conduct experiments in pursuit of their so-called ascension. We're corrupt from the top down. We're run by a bunch of gangsters, a bunch of criminals. That's the way I see it, and I think it would be proven that most at the top are sociopaths, psychopaths, or both. So we're in a system that's corrupt. And it's corrupted everything. It's corrupted the air we breathe. 
the water we drink, the food we eat, the educational system, the political system, the monetary system, and actually the social interaction system. I mean, this is one of my pet peeves, having uh, two millennials, two daughters, a 25, well, soon be 25 and a 24-year-old, and they are a good example of being locked down into this paradigm that's in this little machine that is, you know, what is it, four and a half inches by two and a half inches by, uh, you know, three, four eighths of an inch wide, and they're locked into this idea that the smartphone is somehow helping them when actually it's sucking the life force right out of them. I mean, this is probably one of my biggest concerns is where technology is taking society at large. It is commonly believed that these individuals and families reside amidst international bankers and religious institutions like the Vatican. But the unseen bodies who are behind the advancement and emergence of the cyberhive Earth economy are perhaps far more ancient in origin. Matthew 6.24 No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Now it's very interesting that the Hebrew word for money is mammon. And that word is, has been characterized um, over many centuries as being synonymous with an evil spirit that can hover over money or be expressed through money should people choose to make money their master instead of God. So it's been anthropomorphized, if you will, in many cases where people are addicted to money. Money can be deceitful in that at the times where you have a lot of it, you tend to think more highly of, of yourself than you should. So money is kind of a double-edged sword. Um, we need it, obviously, to put food on the table, but we can lust after it and make it our God. And spiritually speaking, the Bible clearly warns in hundreds of verses that there is a spiritual effect behind money if we choose to become addicted to it. In Ezekiel chapter 8, God shows the prophet Ezekiel the truth concerning what the elders of Israel were up to in the darkness. It is interesting to note that the chapter begins by indicating the sixth year on the sixth month on the fifth day, as if to indicate the state of affairs just a day before the alignment of 666. God shows Ezekiel the north gate where they were provoking the idol of jealousy. Then he was shown inside the court through a hole in the wall, leading to a doorway that led to rooms with drawings of detestable beasts along with all the idols of the house of Israel. There were the seventy elders, each with a censer in his hand, worshipping at the shrine of their own idol. Ezekiel was shown a woman sitting at the entrance of the north gate weeping for Tammuz, an ancient Mesopotamian god, and in the inner court, twenty-five men faced east, worshipping the sun with their backs turned to the temple of the Lord. This account of the elders of Israel secretly worshipping creation, beasts, and demonic gods is still happening today. In fact, the connection between occult rituals and the emergence of the cyberhive earth in the 20th century are also well documented for our knowledge.
religion is merging, the one worldism and the religion is merging together. And at the same time, these, this technocratic meme around the world is everywhere now. We've got to take care of Mother Earth. It's just like what the Bible says, they will worship the creation instead of the creator. So, you know, people say stuff, and, and I look at it anymore, I say, well, that's part of the whole deception. I don't care what the specific words are, but it's just so part of the deception because if you don't believe in the historic truth that the Bible lays out, you can believe anything, absolutely anything. You can say anything, almost do anything, think anything. And uh, science is becoming a religious experiment. In an invitation-only meeting in 1942, Frank Fremont Smith, the executive of the Josiah Macy Jr. Foundation, who, for the span of 20 years, organized many events, including the Macy Cybernetics Conferences, sponsored the Cerebral Inhibition Meeting. His mission was to investigate the, quote, physiological mechanisms underlying the phenomena of conditioned reflexes and hypnosis as related to the problem of cerebral inhibition. Attendees included Gary Bateson, an anthropologist and cyberneticist, who is famously known for his theory of the double bind, a communication paradox that is found in schizophrenics. Also attending was Lawrence K. Frank, who in his book The Conduct of Sex, Biology and the Ethics of Sex and Parenthood, wrote, quote, We can say that in our country today, many people are openly ignoring or rejecting the codes and prohibitions expressed in our traditional sex morals. This brings home the realization that we have no adequate sex ethics. A humanly desirable social order can be attained only as we recognize our enduring goals and strive to make them operational in terms of contemporary needs and opportunities. Ethical conduct, therefore, may be looked upon as a circular, reciprocal relationship and, as such, should be the guide to all fulfilling human relationships. In other words, he was suggesting that the codes of ethics for relationships between any two individuals ought to be approached systematically by considering one's own response to the system. But the problem with this approach is that humans are not perfect as we can perceive perfection. This is precisely the sin virus in action, confusing the infrastructure that belongs to God and making us think we ought to be at the center of the equation. The next at the meeting was Margaret Mead, a staple in modern anthropology, whose controversial work advocating adolescent promiscuity in South Pacific and Southeastern Asian traditions is another example of breaking down the ethics of family by way of lust. Also invited was Warren Sturgis McCulloch, whose 1943 paper titled A Logical Calculus of Ideas Eminent in Nervous Activity became widely credited with being a seminal contribution to neural network theory, the theory of automata, the theory of computation, and cybernetics. Then there is Arturo Rosenbluth, a Mexican researcher, physician, and one of the pioneers of cybernetics who would go on to receive grants from the Rockefeller Foundation, both between 1947 and 49, and again in 1951 to 52. 
And finally, Lawrence Kuby, a psychoanalyst from New York, who proposed the theory of closed reverberating circuits to explain neurosis, a disorder that is now known as OCD, anxiety, hysteria, and other various phobias. It is interesting to note that all of the worldviews presented by these individuals have been externalized into society to the point of redefining the nature of human relationship and intimacy in our generation. And again, this unique collection of people had two topics at the cerebral inhibition meeting, hypnotism and conditioned reflex or classical conditioning, a learned procedure made famous by the Pavlov's dog experiment. A picture presented by the art of Suzanne Treister, called Hexen 2.0, shows a cybernetic seance in New York 1947. Included in the picture is Mead, McCulloch, Rosenbluth, Bateson, Lawrence K. Frank, Frank Freeman Smith, and many others, including Norbert Weiner, the man deemed the father of cybernetics. So what sort of conjuring might have taken place at this seance? And to what end did they envision as the fulfillment of their plan? Norbert Weiner, in Cybernetics or Control and Communication in the Animal and the Machine, stated, quote, Let us remember that the automatic machine is the precise economic equivalent of slave labor. Any labor which competes with slave labor must accept the economic consequences of slave labor. In other words, what they may have wanted is an automated economy with enslaved men and machines. To better understand what this is, we can turn to the scriptures. Money is a symbolic token for human life. If you think of all the thousands of hours you spend throughout your whole working life earning money to put food on the table and hopefully save for a rainy day, the bankers throughout history are more than aware that your life is tied up to a great degree in the pursuit of money. So the bankers are more than aware that when they make financial manipulations, they are actually manipulating your life. It's not just numbers on a computer screen that we're familiar with in 21st century. We're talking about slavery. The curses found in the early chapters of Genesis, culminating in the book of Revelation with the mark of the beast and the worship of the image of the beast, have one thing in common, economic slavery. Genesis 3.17 in the Berean Study Bible translation says, and to Adam he says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree from which I commanded you not to eat, cursed is the ground because of you. Through toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Merriam-Webster defines slavery as drudgery or toil. Through this curse, mankind through Adam is enslaved to the earth itself for sustenance as opposed to the freely accessible fruit in the Garden of Eden. The evolution of civilizations in our fallen world have been determined by their ability to more efficiently minimize the toil and maximize the output of goods and services for the sustenance of a given population. The sin virus is tangibly evident in the entire concept of human civilizations and their economies. 
The first city mentioned after the fall of man is Enoch, named after Cain's first son, not to be confused with the son of Jared found in Genesis 5, although it is fascinating to consider that there is an Enoch that was taken to heaven, as well as an Enoch, the son of the first human murderer. Genesis 4 verses 17 through 26 zooms in on the lineage of Cain and what the Bible tells us about his family business. Jabal made tents and owned cattle. Jubal was the father of instruments and music. Tubal-Cain worked with brass and iron. And while all these skills can fall under the heading of toil and thus economic slavery, they mostly appear to be knowledge handed down from the Watchers. In chapter 8 of the Book of Enoch, the Watchers who taught mankind various things are even named, quote, And Azazel taught man to make swords and knives and shields and breastplates and made known to them the metals of the earth and the art of working them and bracelets and ornaments and the use of antimony and the beautifying of the eyelids and all kinds of costly stones and all coloring tinctures. And there arose much godlessness, and they committed fornication, and they were led astray and became corrupt in all their ways. A communication between divine beings and fallen humans established a kind of mingling that was detrimental to mankind. Its infrastructure for civilization was destructive. In fact, this pattern of divine beings providing destructive knowledge to humans is also found in Psalm 82, the famous passage about the divine council where God judges the gods for their misconduct over populations. All of these examples beg the question, is this exchange of knowledge between the watchers and fallen humans still happening today? It is my personal opinion that it absolutely is. Perhaps the individuals who were involved in the cybernetic seance in 1947 are an example of what Jude 1.11 states, Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. Revelation 18.23 describes the judgment of Mystery Babylon, zooming in on the merchants of the earth. And the light of the candle shall shine no more at all in thee, and the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth, for by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. As many have pointed out, the word for sorceries is pharmakia, the Greek root for the English word pharmacy. A list of items that will no longer be sold to the temple includes slaves and the souls of men. The takeaway is that the merchants of the earth deceive the world through sorcery or pharmakia while being in the business of trading slaves and the souls of men. Controlling and enslaving humanity through technology that is indistinguishable from magic was always going to be the natural outcome of the curse over mankind. Just as it was in the days of Cain, we remain in toil and under the supernatural oppression of the tangible economic infrastructure influenced by the non-human spiritual entities running the sin virus through various bloodlines. But the more transparent the cyberhive earth economy becomes, the more they will begin to reveal themselves to the public.
The blockchain looks like t it's a truth machine. Right. I mean, if I do a transaction with you and it's, it's there on that ledger forever, right. it's hard for me to say, well, no, no, I didn't. No, it's that it's date, there. that time. Yeah, and that. Yeah. So I think from that aspect, I think it's very powerful. My problem with all this stuff is that man is corrupt or can be corrupted. And is there a way to fiddle with it or not? I'm not techy enough to know. What I do know is the concept or the principle of it I like. And I think it will be adopted more and more as we're seeing as we speak. I mean, there's all kinds of things coming on the blockchain. There's not only, you know, agricultural products and, you know, cryptocurrencies, but there's just ways of keeping track of uh, payrolls and everything else. So I like it. I like the idea that you have a truth machine that cannot be meddled with. And I put meddled with in quotes because maybe it can be. Again, I do worry about the security. If you look at the top dogs in the, in the data technology world, almost all of them to a man and woman will tell you that uh, they are concerned about security. So what is the blockchain? Blockchain technology is a decentralized database that stores a registry of assets and transactions across a peer-to-peer -peer network. It's basically a public registry of who owns what and who transacts what. The transactions are secured through cryptography. And over time, that transaction history gets locked in blocks of data that are then cryptographically linked together and secured. This creates an immutable, unforgeable record of all of the transactions across this network. This record is replicated on every computer that uses the network. There are, of course, other technical details to the blockchain, but at its core, that's how it works. It's this public registry that stores transactions in a network and is replicated so that it's very secure and hard to tamper with. Which brings me to my point of how blockchains lower uncertainty and how they therefore promise to transform our economic systems in radical ways. So uncertainty is kind of a big term in economics, but I want to go through three forms of it that we face in almost all of our everyday transactions, where blockchains can play a role. We face uncertainties like not knowing who we're dealing with, not having visibility into a transaction, and not having recourse if things go wrong. Blockchains give us the technological capability of creating a record of human exchange, of exchange of currency, of all kinds of digital and physical assets, even of our own personal attributes in a totally new way. So in some ways, they become a technological institution that has a lot of the benefits of the traditional institutions we're used to using in society. But it does this in a decentralized way. It does this by converting a lot of our uncertainties into certainties. So I think we need to start preparing ourselves because we're about to face a world where distributed autonomous institutions have quite a significant role. The blockchain is built by computer users around the world competing to be the first to solve mathematical problems as issued by the central authorities of each cryptocurrency. Each problem requires progressive amounts of computing power to solve, which represents a financial investment. Once a mathematical problem is confirmed to be solved, 
a cryptocurrency unit is issued to the owner of the computer system which provided the solution as a reward for proof of work. Now keep that phrase proof of work in mind. Each mathematical solution is called a block and is linked to other mathematical solutions in a cryptographic chain of data, hence the term blockchain. Now, how does this all fit into a Bible prophecy? Well, like I said before, a trust of governments and trusts uh, in the world financial systems is at an all-time low. And when you think about more Bible prophecy, that stands to reason because the Bible says towards the end of the age, there will be an increase in laws and in lawlessness. So you can't necessarily trust your financial institution anymore. You can't necessarily trust your government anymore, no matter who's in office. So the whole blockchain system of distributed ledger technology should, and I said should, offer us a solution uh, to avoid trust issues. The problem is that the Bible is very clear, especially in the book of Revelation, that there will be some kind of technology, some kind of mark, where everyone cannot buy and sell without having access to that mark. And when you think of um, certain tech lords in Silicon Valley developing um, technologies like graphene, um, it certainly stands to reason that the mark, no matter what form it takes eventually, is literally an authentication system, a way for the system to prove who you are so you can get access to that system. It was inconceivable 50 years ago, even 20 years ago, that we would have a computer network system that would control um, the economies of the entire world. But that day is not, no longer on the horizon. It's already here. And when you combine quantum computing with artificial intelligence, with the blockchain, and a whole host of other technologies like programmable matter, where you can literally print up the object that you were shopping for online in your own home, then the entire economy that we know of is turned upside down. But that is the point where we are at right now. So it's daunting on one hand and it's exciting on the other because uh, I have every reason to believe that when you consider about 6,000 years of recorded history, that um, we have every reason to believe that we are in the final 1% of human history. I think the church needs to, especially the American church, needs to sort of come to grips with and be honest about what it has become intellectually. And that is, we are modern people, we are products of the Enlightenment. We do not share the kind of supernatural worldview that the biblical writers had. And so for me, ultimately, it's, it's a question of biblical authority. Uh, are you going to bend your belief system to it, to Scripture? 
or you're going to try to bend it to your will. And a lot of Christians are uncomfortable with that, you know, for a number of different reasons. But I think we need to really come to grips with our own inconsistency. I think a word like hypocrisy is probably harsh, but in some cases, if the shoe fits, then we need to wear it. Uh, because we embrace ideas like a virgin birth, like a trinity, uh, like a hypostatic union. Jesus is, is, you know, has these two natures. He's 100% God, 100% man. Uh, neither one is diminished, but it's one person. I mean, there's nothing normal about this. There's nothing normative in the human world about this. This is, by nature, by definition, supernatural territory. And yet somehow we can embrace that, but we don't embrace other things that are in the same Bible. And it becomes self-serving. I'll take this, but I won't take that because I don't really want to go there intellectually, but some, for some reason we'll go here. Again, I think we re really need to re-examine that because if we don't do that, we sort of lose a sense of not only just sort of the supernatural activity in Scripture, but the, the nearness you know, of what God is trying to do through his supernatural agents, through, through us, uh, again, in this sort of blended family idea, we, we, we miss sort of the, the overarching narrative. The, the, I like to refer to it as the supernatural epic you know, of the Bible. We, we, we know the stories, but we, we miss their meaning. We miss how they connect to each other. We miss the big picture. And some Christians don't care. They don't want to know their Bible, um, which again, I think is a travesty. Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't know how that you, you can, you know, a lot of Christians want, to, want the feeling of knowing God without the discipline, intellectually, of the Word of God. Uh, and that, that is just a, a, a tragic inconsistency. So I think we need sort of a wake-up call there. And um, we need to be, we need to sort of be shown for, for who we've become as the church. We, we are often more skeptical and more rationalistic than people we would sort of poke fun at, like the New Agers. Yeah, they're an easy target, but, but, but they're actually more predisposed to belief in the supernatural than we are. And we, of all people, should be the ones predisposed to that because of what Scripture says. So I think we really have a lot of self-examination to do. What we can anticipate moving forward has been communicated through the Word of God for anyone who has an ear to hear and has understanding. The symptoms of the sin virus will at some point become so awful that it will require the removal of the church who will be a part of the first resurrection. The remainder of creation will be burned up in judgment. In Luke 12 verse 49, Jesus yearns for the day of the Lord. I am come to send fire on earth, and what will I if it be already kindled? Malachi 4.1 says, For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly, shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, and that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. This future time will also include the burning up of the false prophet, the beast, and their armies who are thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Revelation 19.20 then in Revelation 20, verse 10, it says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, into which the beast and the false prophet had already been thrown. There they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. 
The mention of sulfur is interesting because in the world of paranormal research, the smell of sulfur is often associated with haunted locations and entities. But amidst the explosion of evil in our world, God always protects a remnant. Isaiah 10 verses 20 through 23. On that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no longer depend on him who struck them, but they will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob, to the Almighty God. And as occult worship becomes more and more public, passages like Romans 11, 4-5 rings more true. Quote, I had reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so, then at this present time, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Micah 5 verse 6 says, And the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many as a dew from the Lord, as the showers upon the grass, that teareth not for man, nor waiteth for the sons of men. The remnant church will not be determined by denominations, dogma, race, or any other fallen attribute. It will simply be those who stand in the name of Jesus Christ in open opposition to the emerging cyber hive earth. A couple of examples or foreshadowing of the remnant church are found in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Chapter 2, with the mention of the church of Smyrna, where God outlines a violent confrontation that requires faith even unto death. And in Revelation 3, the church of Philadelphia, whose obedience to the word of God keeps them protected from the hour of temptation, which will fall upon the whole world. I know thy works, behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon the whole world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Notice the promise of being joined to the city of our God, the New Jerusalem, a time and place where the intended infrastructure of God's creation is reattained. The cyber hive earth is an inevitability, but our mission here is to love God and love our neighbor, which involves the spreading of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. As the beast emerges, the transparency of our souls will also make it very obvious where our loyalties will lie. With God declaring his truth that sets us free from the sin virus and on the path to the restoration protocol? Or with the beast? <laughs>